You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. My guest today somehow finds time to star in film, television, perform stand-up, host podcasts and award shows, and write a very personal film that took Sundance by storm earlier this year. The Big Sick tells the extraordinary story of how he met his wife and the medical crisis that transformed that story into an emotional romance that hit screens later this month. And here he is, the star of my favorite TV show, Kumail Nanjani. Thank you for coming on the show, man. Oh, thank you for having me. And I mean that. It's my favorite show. That's great. That's <laughs> awesome. It's a good show. It's the best thing on TV. I'm all caught up with the brand new season, too, like eight episodes into it. Or oh, really? Whatever. However many they've given us access to, I've watched them immediately when they're ready. I'm behind. I'm a couple episodes <laughs> behind. I am. I've been traveling because I haven't gotten to see them. It's, it's so far so good, man. So far so good. What yeah. is that, season four? This is season four. Yeah, we just got picked up for season five, which well, is very, good. very exciting. It's just good, too. It's hard to have a job, and then it's almost impossible to have a job on a show that you actually can be proud of and like and you'd mm-hmm. watch even if you weren't on it so it, it's really i feel very grateful i'm going to talk about that later um but to start with the big sick obviously i want to talk about uh confidence uh you know just talk to me about the confidence to put a very personal story into the world the the confidence to uh you know have the drive and initiative initiative to make it happen to to put together the team to do it uh what has that journey of confidence been like on this particular project um well for me since when i first started stand i never felt i never felt like i was confident like part of my thing is that i don't i don't think too far ahead so the bad thing is i don't plan but the good thing is i don't really think of possible negative consequences you know so if 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 I want to like do something, I'll just kind of start doing it and not consider what if it doesn't happen. I'll just kind of do it until it does or doesn't. Mm -hmm. So with this movie, um, that's kind of how it was. I started, we started working on it and I'd never considered that we wouldn't get to make it, even though I understand it's, it's so rare that anybody gets to make a movie, let alone starring someone who hasn't started a movie before. Um, so I didn't really think of the negative consequences. And also, when you have you know Judd working with you, he gives you a lot of confidence in just being like, I've never been the lead of a movie. I'd actually never done anything but comedic acting. I hadn't done any dramatic acting. And he was the one who was like, no, you can do it. It's going to be you. You write it, then you'll star in it. You just have to, from the beginning, sort of the deal with Judd was, if you can write a really good script, then I'll help you. I'll make this movie with you. Um, but it's kind of on you to work on it and write a really good script. So it's one of those things where, like, we wrote the script for three years when finally Judd was like, all right, I think we can start moving on. And at that point, it's sort of a ball rolling down a hill. You're just mm-hmm. um, you're sort of working in in isolation for, for a long time, and then suddenly the wheels start moving, and you just kind of, like, swept up in the journey, you know? Mm-hmm. How driven, mobilized were you to to do it? If say you weren't able to find a director, so like, would you were you prepared to get behind the camera yourself and put this out there? Or I really didn't want to direct this movie. I, w- I would like to direct at some point. Mm-hmm. I just knew that being the lead of a movie that we had written that was about our lives was going to be so challenging that I really wanted to focus on my performance. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came time to shoot the movie. Um, Mike, the director, Michael Showalter, was very, very, very... um, He was very involved with us for the last year of prep, and he was very, very collaborative. So I got to sort of learn 
a little bit of how directing works and how much work it is. It's a lot of work. Um, and so uh, for this movie, definitely wanted someone else to, to direct it so that I could, I could focus on just the performance once we started rolling. What did Michael bring to the table that made you feel like he was the guy? He could do this. Well, you know, I'd known Michael because I'd written for him for a show called Michael, Michael of Issues, which mm-hmm. lasted six episodes. You know how some shows last six seasons? This lasted six <laughs> episodes. He was the so he gave me this. He gave me that job. So I'd known him for was this 2008. So I'd known him for like a few years at that point, and I had a small part in his movie uh, "Hello, My Name Is Doris," which I thought was really fantastic. So what Michael brought to it was Michael has a great sense of story. Michael is really great at structure stuff. So he read the script, liked it, came in and pitched to us and judged his take, and then his his whole thing was. Um, uh, just how to focus the story and he was like in the script he was like this specific scene all I know is that this c- scene comes right in the middle of the movie so everything else you guys sort of build around that like move scenes around whatever you gotta do but this is the middle of the movie that's what I know so he really brought that and he's a really emotional guy and he's really good at emotional stuff like a lot of comedy people sort of shy away from emotions he really mm-hmm. doesn't Um so he brought a lot of uh, story, uh, just skill at telling a story, uh, skill at plum- plumbing the depths of emotions. He's great with actors with that. And also he is just really funny. Like he's just done a lot of comedy stuff. So mm-hmm. um, he also just was like a really funny guy to have around and, you know, pitch jokes and stuff while we were shooting. And this probably gets... <clears throat> back to that idea of confidence, but what was it like just to share this super personal story? I mean, this is obviously a very private element of your life that is now forever public. <laughs> it's forever immortalized, and that's a unique perspective not all of us have, you know. So now you have this intensely private element of your life that's writ large. So what does that feel like? Well, you know, as a stand-up, at some point, I started taking personal stories and personal experiences and talking about them on stage. So I had a little bit of experience being personal Mm -hmm. and sort of giving of myself in little ways. This is sort of the deal. I was thinking about this earlier today or last night when I couldn't sleep. You know, there is a little bit of you lose... A lot of people see your vulnerability, right? But a little bit, I think that's sort of the deal with the devil you have to make to do what I get to do. Like, what you get is you get to live your dreams and tell your stories, and it's really exciting. But what the price of that a little bit is that you are giving a piece of yourself for everyone to analyze and judge. Um, but I knew, like, a few years after these the events of the movie had happened, I knew that I wanted to, like, do something with it, like either do a show about it or something, because it felt like this very specific emotional thing that had happened, and I knew that nobody else had the story, mm-hmm. and that um, only Emily and I were the ones who would be able to tell the story, like, kind of, if we didn't tell the story, the story would just not get told, nobody else has this. So, um, and, and and I really think... For me, writing, and I think the best writing, is sort of you're trying to deal with your concerns and tackle stuff that's complicated and messy for you. And part of, it's a little bit of like self-therapy working on something like this. So I knew that 
this was a story I wanted to tell. Emily took a little bit more convincing. Uh, I knew this was a story I wanted to tell because thinking about it would like paralyze me. And I knew that I had a lot of like stuff floating around inside this black box that I hadn't opened. And I knew that in in order to be able to move on from this kind of crazy event, I'd have to write about it and really get into it and 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 sort of figure out how I felt about it. You know, and it's very easy to be like, well, that was a tough time. But when you actually open the box and think about like, what did I do this day? And then this happened and this happened. This is how that made me feel. Like going through all the events uh, piece by piece is, it's very difficult, but I think it's also uh, allowed us to get a handle on this big, big part of our life. Did you get swept up in any kind of emotion, like in the moment, in a scene that would obviously remind you of this very emotional moment in your life? There are some scenes that I cried when I wrote them. I cried when I rewrote them. I cried when I rehearsed them, and and then shooting them was the same thing. I was surprised at how much of it actually felt like going through the real thing. Part of it is... I mean more the hospital stuff. Because when you're in a hospital, this wasn't a set. We shot in a real hospital. Mm. The sense memory of being in a hospital, and I hadn't, that, it had been about nine years since that stuff happened. Just the lighting, the smell of tape, the smell of medicine, the sterility. The, the sounds. The sounds. The beeps. Yeah, yeah, the weird beeps. You yeah. hear all that stuff. The uh, sounds of wheels mm-hmm. on um, linoleum or whatever it is. All that stuff took me back immediately, me and Emily, both of us, like, immediately. So it was actually more of a struggle to not uh, go back into that really sad space. Uh, It was actually more of a struggle to not do that than it was to, like, get into it, you know, like, like waiting in the waiting room or all that stuff. I hadn't been in a hospital really since all that stuff happened to us and going back into it and shooting it there uh, it was very very it was very intense and it was very intense for Emily it was about 10 years ago right yeah it was 2007 yeah you said she took a little more convincing Emily did so uh, what do you think what did it take to get her there I think (laughs) so I'd met with Judd and I'd spoken to him about doing this and I'd sort of started writing it and I told her I was like hey I want to write about this event from from my perspective and she was very understanding of that and she was like of of course that's your right but as I was writing it I just felt like it wasn't going to be good unless both perspectives were in there so I just had to read I think what happened was I wrote a very rough version of the script from my perspective she read it and she understood a little bit how it was for me to go through it. And she knew that, that, that I think that was a little bit exciting to her, too, was to see things through my eyes. And But she also knew, like, listen, if you're going to do this story, it's not going to be complete unless we have both these perspectives. So I think she jumped on one because um, she realized the, the sort of there is a joy in even um, telling a story about something that's very painful, there is a joy in it, I think, and there's an excitement in it. And I mm-hmm. think she 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 sort of got that. 
And she just knew that it was going to be good for our relationship because I realized I didn't know, I didn't understand these events from her perspective and she didn't understand them from my perspective. So she started writing, we started writing together. She assumed it was never going to get made. So for her, it was, I think, more... Get it out of your system. Get it out of your system, (laughs) a little bit of therapy. Let's get to know each other. Let's figure this out. She'd written a couple things about it, but nothing really. So, So I think she jumped on being like, this will never get made and it'll just be like a great thing that we get to do together for us and mm-hmm. for each other. Uh, was her potentially playing herself? I just added the question from the beginning. Or? Yeah, I mean, she's not an actress and yeah. she didn't want to do that from the very beginning. Yeah. She, you know, the plan was always like, Judd, I'll play me and we'll get a really, hopefully a really great actress to play Emily, which we, which we were able to. Um, Emily never wanted to play herself. She has mm-hmm. no interest in performance or anything. She's a writer. She used to be, she was a practicing therapist. She's not anymore, but she's a writer and, you know, that's what she definitely wanted to do with this. She didn't, she didn't want to act in that. Yeah, I don't want to get in front of any cameras either, personally. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to get me to do it here all the time, though. Uh, you're, what, like six months removed from Sundance now. That must have been just a dream come true, right? Yeah, it's really crazy, because, you know, we were, at that point, very proud of the movie we'd made, and we, we really liked it, but the people who really have been working on it, it was a very small group of people that really had been working on it. And they're all the people who obviously had the highest stakes in it. We were like, we're the least objective people. We think we did a good job, but who knows, you know? Um, so Emily and I, when we were sitting at Sundance, it was very, you know, we were excited to get in and we, we started watching it with the crowd. And there was a specific point like a few minutes into the movie where I could feel like, oh, they they like this movie now. Because there's always like, especially at Sundance, I think there's a little bit of like, in the beginning, you're like, what is this? Do I like it? Do I want to be on board? Am I going to check out? You're evaluating it. But there was a specific point in the movie fairly early on where I just felt like, oh, they, they want to see this movie now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from then on, it was just, sort of actually the first screening was definitely a little bit deer in headlights for me I could was tell was it at the Eccles it was at the Eccles okay. the first screening was at the the first two screenings were at the Eccles okay. so for the first screening it was just like I was like oh here comes this I hope this goes well I hope this joke lands oh I hope this <laughs> works and uh, and I could tell it went really well and the reviews were really good, but it was the next morning. We had another screening at 9 a.m. the next day. So we were lucky in that we had a screening at 6.30 p.m. And so we got a lot of reviews from that. And and then we had an imme- uh, a screening immediately afterwards so that people could would continue talking about it. So we had another screening at 9 a.m. the next day. And that I watched and actually enjoyed watching it. Um, uh, it was, I mean, you know, it kind of felt like Emily and I were saying, it kind of felt like it was our wedding or something. Because <laughs> you walk around and everybody knows you. And even if people haven't seen the movie, they know you are the guys who wrote this movie that like sold for whatever to, you know, because mm-hmm. that becomes a big part of the story too. So it was exciting. It was mostly just exciting to have so many people connect with it um, and come up to us and tell us what parts of the movie they, they really felt like... Um, just connected to you know so it was uh, Ray Romana gets me the whole the whole time he's so amazing did you guys have like 
obviously you're picturing yourselves and, and the real people whenever you're writing the script, but did, did casting ideas pop into your head? Did you think of someone like Holly Hunter or like Ray Romano when you're writing the script? Well, from, for instance, for my dad character, I always wrote it, we always wrote it for that actor, Anupam mm-hmm. Kerr. He's mm-hmm. a Bollywood legend. So for him, from the very beginning, it was my dad's voice. It helps that my dad and the guy playing my dad look alike, mm-hmm. too. Um, so so f- with him, certainly written in his voice, um, Holly was uh, the, first, uh, the second person cast after Zoe. And what we did was we'd sort of written it with these characters in mind, and we sort of had Holly Hunter in mind writing for Emily's mom uh, a few months before we started casting it. So we rewrote it for Holly Hunter, hoping that she would do it, and that was the person we really wanted to get for Emily's mom. So so we did write it with her in mind. At some point, we were like, once we um, got a director, we were like, Holly Hunter would be the best for this. Let's Let's just try and write it to her. With Ray Romano, that was Judd's idea. Judd mm-hmm. was like, I think Holly Hunter and Ray Romano would make a good pairing, and they don't make sense in the same way that the central couple kind of doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like, when you see these two people together, it's, like, interesting. They're not people that you would imagine being together, like me and Zoe together. Like, we just look so different. It's mm-hmm. interesting. And then Ray and Holly look so different. It's interesting. And they have such different energies. And the New York and North Carolina vibe. Or the, exactly. The, you know, I'm, exactly. I'm not sure where Holly's from, actually, but just the Southern vibe. She's from North Carolina in okay. the movie. In the movie, she's oh, from okay. North Carolina, yeah, yeah. but I think she's actually from West Virginia. Okay. Um, so, yes, exactly. So we wanted to mirror that relationship with our relationship a little bit. And that was, you know, Judd was friends with Ray and had worked with him on Funny People. Mm-hmm. And Ray has a quick, funny, very funny scene. And he was like... He's such a great actor, and people haven't really seen that yet. Um, so I was, you know, I've been, I've, I've been a big fan of Reyes for a long time, from like stand up to his show. So we were like, I knew he was going to be really good because even when he did Everybody Loves Raymond, which was like sort of a broad multicam sitcom, his performance is always so grounded. This I've always found there's like a melancholy to him, no mm-hmm. matter what he does. Even when he's doing stand, when he's really funny, there's like a really appealing, like sad sackness to him. That I, I, I think, I think that like sadness and comedy go really well together, which is what a lot of our movie is. Mm-hmm. I think they can really deepen each other. I think really funny stuff can really sets up sad stuff really well and I think really emotional stuff stuff sets up funny stuff really well so so we were like oh Ray we had no doubt we didn't audition him or anything obviously we were just like we just asked him if he if he wanted to do it and just knew that he was going to be fantastic yeah um <clears throat> speaking of North Carolina Emily grew up in or did she grow up in Winston-Salem Yes, you did. I went to college in Winston-Salem. No, you did? Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I grew up in North Carolina. I grew up in Salsbury. Really? Near Charlotte. Yeah. She's from um, K-Vegas. You know, Kernersville? Yeah, yeah. They, they called it K-Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it well, actually. Uh, and she, really? she went to school in Greensboro, too, right? Yeah, UNC College, Greensboro. Yeah. She do you went go to. down there often? I go down there all the time. What do you think of North Carolina? <laughs> you know, in the beginning, I didn't. I was like, because I'm a city guy. I grew up in cities. So in the beginning, when I would go back, I would be like... It was so alien to me. I'd never really been in the South that much. But 
but I really have grown to love it. I mm-hmm. think the people are so nice. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of tough to reconcile that, you know, I had the image, this image of the South in my head before I went. And when I was going there, I was like putting that like filter on top of everything. But I really love it. I think it's really gorgeous. I think the people are really nice. I think for the most, most part, they're really genuine. And it's also like the people who are cool, I found like, so like if you're in New York, right, the hipsters, there's like the mm-hmm. tattoo hipsters, there's like the hat hipsters, mm-hmm. there's like the punk hipsters, they're all different. In North Carolina, there's so few of them that they're all the types smushed together. So you have a person who's like the tattoo hipster and the punk hipster and the like the the rockabilly hipster all smushed into one. And I think Emily had this experience growing up where she was like all the weird kids had to hang out together. Mm-hmm. So it was like because Emily was like a goth and the goth kids hung out with the gay kids, hung out with like the, the black kids, you yeah. know, so like whoever was... Uh, sort of an outsider they all hung out together so unlike the Hispanic kids you know and so it's really neat when I go back and go to where she used to go and hang out with her friends it's like a very diverse group of people uh, because they all had to sort of find solace in each other's uh, otherness you know yeah do you go back is it Winston-Salem that you go to whenever you yeah go? we go to uh, Winston-Salem yeah. some good bars there on uh, Art for Art's Sake Boulevard yeah that, <laughs> that's it. there you go that name's not trying too hard <laughs> yeah it's you, a funny town are man. you talking about like uh, Single Brothers and uh, Silver yeah. Moon yeah uh, Silver Moon, Moon Saloon Silver Moon Saloon and uh, what's that place around the corner Warehouse or Garage what's the it garage. called The Garage there's a place called The Garage I think and then there's like First Street uh, draft house and uh, if you ever make it over to uh, op- what's called Opera House Sher- Sheridan Opera House not Sheridan that's in Telluride there's a place called the Opera House it's like a another bar but lots, really? lots of good bars in Winston-Salem there's a the new one called the Black Lodge have you been to that I one? Like, that the, one. like Twin Peaks is that, really? Does it have that kind of a vibe or something? Well, I think the base of off that it's not like really? licensed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, selling but, little toys. Yeah, I'm not a big. Is it called the Black Lodge? I don't want to mess I don't it know. up. I, I I'm don't not know a huge one. Twin Peaks guy. Emily <laughs> is. Um, I think it's called the. Uh, I literally am watching the show now, and I can't remember. It is the Something Lodge, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are yelling at us right now. It's yeah. called this. Yeah, you're gonna have to edit. But this anyway. Out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we've hit up all those all those places, and I know, like you know, we we, we go to like the, the 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 small restaurants that they love that are one offs, and I think it's a lot. Do you like North Carolina? I do. I go back. Maybe I'll run into you there one day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we go, go back like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh-huh. I used to do a show there every New Year, uh, Christmas Eve, Eve. We didn't do oh, one yeah. last year, but um, I used to do a show at like the. Um, uh, Local, f- the, the Cat's Cradle. Do you know that place? Yeah, yeah. That's the, in, uh, isn't that in Chapel Hill? That's in Chapel yeah, Hill. Yeah. And then also the f- local 401 or what's it called? The 3 or something. Yeah, some of these venues. There's so many. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's cool. I, you know, we obviously have a, a lunatic legislature in North Carolina right now, but, uh, <laughs> you know, with all of the yeah, what have a, you. Yeah, there's a lot of what have you happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think about this kind of boom lately? Uh, maybe it's a boom, maybe it's not, but stand-up centric projects. I mean, yeah. there, there's elements of it in your film. Obviously, there's the Showtime show. I'm dying up here. There's uh, uh, Pete Holmes show, Crashing. 
What do you think about that? I mean, it's it's obviously fertile territory to to mine and play with, but uh, yeah, and there's Marin and Louis, mm-hmm. and yeah. I mean, I think at its most basic, it it comes out of people who are comedians wanting to write about what they know, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Louis, Marin, Pete, uh, all that uh, is pretty. It sort of makes sense on its own. I was honestly a little worried that our movie. I just didn't want our movie to be like, oh, it's one of the stand-up things. Like, Birbiglia's done great stuff about comedy. You know, Mm -hmm. he did uh, Don't Think Twice and Sleepwalk With Me, which is about stand-up. So I was was honestly a little concerned where I was like, there's so many things that are about the world of comedy. Um, I hope people don't think that this is another one that's really about that because that the, the stand-up aspect of our movie really is pretty pretty small and mm-hmm. we this was interesting so the movie has kind of like five storylines right so it's me and emily emily's sickness me and my parents me and emily's parents and then the stand-up and we realized in editing that the first four stories Intertwine and bump against each other and enrich each other and complicate each other and sort of like have a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. The stand-up storyline kind of is on its own. Doesn't really... It's only a way to illustrate what's going on in the other four storylines. It doesn't really complicate anything. In the, so we ended up actually cutting out a lot of the stand-up storyline. There were a lot more um, stand-up scenes. Like uh, David Allen Greer had mm-hmm. a bigger part in the movie and he was fantastic like doing scenes with him was awesome but unfortunately just you're watching it and you realize like okay so it's the the stakes are this woman could die or these intergenerational conflicts or these intercultural conflicts and then whether i'm going to get into the montreal comedy festival it just (laughs) seems the stakes seem so much lower than all the others we also realized making this movie like so we built in a lot of stand-up stuff as sort of a pressure valve yeah. So, like, if the main storyline got got really intense, we could always go and get some laughs. But in seeing the movie and in showing it to people, we realized people don't want to leave the main storyline. People mm-hmm. want to watch. Like, if you're not dealing with the, those four things, mm-hmm. people are like, what, what, go back to that. Who, who gives a shit about your, your audition, <laughs> you know? Um, so we ended up cutting back on it a lot. I think I think the stand-up world is an interesting place to show sort of people trying to, you know, uh, it's sort of a David versus Goliath thing, right? Like when you're like Pete's show, for instance, what it does so well is it's it's open mic and you, there's this big machine and there's all these people caught up in this in this machine trying to make it, and so few people make it. And I think that's very compelling to see, like sort of the ins and outs of a subculture that a lot of people a lot of people know the surface of the culture mm-hmm. of the subculture but people don't know what the politics of it are so I think it's an interesting way to show like the rat race and the um, the rigmarole of trying to become a successful stand up I think that's sort of the fun of it I think that's sort of the fun of Pete's show I haven't seen I'm Dying Up Here yet but I know it's based on like the 70s comedy yeah. store scene it's, it's pretty good I've seen a couple episodes um, what are some of your uh, or who are some of your com- comedy inspirations well when I was starting uh, you know I loved uh, th- when I was just sort of before I started stand up I was I got obsessed with stand up and I loved um, Jerry Seinfeld I really loved Woody Allen's early stand up from like the 60s 
Um, I really loved uh, Zach Galifianakis. I thought it was a really, really, really funny stand-up doing a lot of like North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina, <laughs> right? Of Asheville. course, yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of North Carolina people. Emily always knows everybody who's like, oh, North Carolina, oh, North Carolina. <laughs> like she knows, like oh, Brett Gelman and John Daly went to UNC, or um, um, you know, Jody Hill and yeah. Danny McBride and everybody. Crew. Tom Hulse from. Um, Amadeus. Yeah. Went to my, uh, I went to North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem. So he, he was in the uh, art school, or the uh, acting school there. Really? Yeah. 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 So everybody from North Carolina knows all the people from North Carolina <laughs> who are in the industry. Does it, Emily has a lot of North Carolina pride. <laughs> um, but so, so I really liked those guys. I thought I thought they were super funny, and um, and Conan and Andy, honestly, like I watched their show all the time before I ever started doing stand up, and I just like I I'd never seen that kind of weird off the wall strange comedy like masturbating bear and stuff. I miss that so much. I wish that the whole thing with the Tonight Show hadn't happened, and I that know. he just. I mean, I know it was his dream. It's every comic's dream, I guess, but like. I miss him at twelve thirty. I miss him in that spot. It was such a unique show, you know. Yeah, it's still he's, he's still it's still a very funny show. He's yeah, I, I always miss it. I always forget it's on TBS. And he's I just, still he's still him and Andy are still so funny. And when I do that show, I'm like, I always have to be like, don't freak out that you're doing Conan. Don't freak out. Um, and then the TV shows, like, uh, I really, really, it's also amazing that. You know, I get to work with Mike Judge because Beavis and Butthead and Office Space were like my favorite, favorite comedies. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about Silicon Valley. First of all, what is Mike Judge like? Because I, I love that guy so much. I love his voice. I, as you say, Beavis and Butthead, King of the Hill, Office Space. I mean, this is like stuff I grew up loving, you know. And uh, and like I say, the new show is my favorite show. So just what's Mike like? He's great. He's a really, he's from Texas. Yeah. So he's really kind of like, a dude he's he's sort of like a beer and steak kind of guy you know mm-hmm. he's like a he's fun he's super super nice and super super grounded like he he gets how ridiculous hollywood can be and stuff um he's just like a really normal nice like if you met him if you didn't know what he looked like you'd be shocked if someone was like oh that's <laughs> comedic genius mike judge you're like oh my god he's just like a nice normal dude but I think Mike's big thing is Mike really, really has an affinity for people, but he really thinks that sort of structures are really funny. Like he sees the ridiculousness of big machines. That's what Office Space is about. Yeah. And I really think he loves like uh, people that don't fit into those machines. So like in Silicon Valley, all of our ultimately the tension of that show is Silicon Valley is this big machine. There's a way certain things are done. There's a way success is achieved. And all our characters don't fit into that. We don't work in that machine. Even yeah. though we're smart, even though we, we want to succeed, we have the drive, we just don't fit into that machine. And us not fitting into that machine highlights the absurdity of the machine, which is sort of what office space is. You know, it's a guy who's yeah. a cog in a machine who has the hypnotized thing happen to him, and he realizes, like, oh, I don't fit in. And you just see the absurdity of it. That's that's exactly what idiocracy is. A guy who mm-hmm. does an outsider coming into that world. And, and Beavis and Butthead is just about two guys who are complete, complete outcasts of society who do not fit into the world, you know? Yeah. So I think that's Mike's, like, real true genius. Um, 
And it's not like I think he thinks organizations are so stupid. <laughs> I think he thinks it's so funny, and he just, you know, that's the stuff he sees and uh, is able to articulate. What are those sets like? Like, do you guys crack each other up? Uh, is it, you know, I mean, just what's it like a normal day when you're shooting Silicon Valley? I think shooting Silicon Valley is always barely barely control chaos because <laughs> all of us are comedians and all of us are fairly high energy people so sometimes it all aligns and we're all high energy together and it's chaos in a good way and then sometimes two people are high energy and other people are low energy so it's like it's like pretty different every day it's always fun what helps is because we're all sort of comedians if you have a long day like a 14 hour day towards the end of the day there is someone who has energy who makes sure that everybody starts spinning too, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a really, really fun set because everybody on that show is, I'm, I'm really good friends with everyone. Like we're all super close. We hang out all the time. I just saw Thomas yesterday, you know? I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of gross how much we like <laughs> hang out. And we're just really fans of each other. And we think each other is, I think we all think the other person is so funny. So it's a very generous set, too, because we we improvise, but we want to give room to the other people just because we want to see what they're going to say. You know, nobody's yeah. like trying to hog the limelight. It's it's It truly is beginning to end, top to bottom, a dream job. It's kind of, it's amazing. Where do you guys film that? Uh, at Sony in Culver City. It's at Sony? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then last thing, just want to bring it back to the big sick. <clears throat> you know, we're in this... Uh, <laughs> this place where the importance of representation is uh, resonating for people. I mean, it's it's the idea that uh, you know, people are beginning to understand that underserved voices, uh, seeing their, their, their voices on screen, their stories on screen is very vital. It's something that makes Moonlight's Best Picture win so wonderful. So, you know, you've made this film about a guy who uh, questions his faith, who is struggling with having, you know, I guess, for lack of a better word, being Americanized in a family who is holding on to custom. And I have no doubt, I mean, growing up, my best friend was an Indian boy, uh, and and I saw him struggle with some of these things as well. So I'm, I'm, I have no doubt that there will be some kid out there who sees a story in this and is really moved by that. So how important is that aspect of this film for you? Well, for me, I certainly, the people connect to the story many different ways. And my favorite is when it's exactly like your friend, when people are like, I have the same story. I'm like second generation and I feel disconnected from my parents. And, and it's the first time I've seen something that really speaks to my experience. So that's my favorite reaction uh, you know whenever we do a screening we'll do a Q&A there'll always be somebody who says like I feel like I feel like I saw myself on screen which is very very it's very exciting and it's a really pretty great side effect of us doing our story. You know, we didn't do our story because we were like, this will be a good social point to raise or this will be a good political statement or anything. Really not at all. We just wanted to tell our story, which is a love story. But because it's a love story between a, a Pakistani man and a woman from North Carolina, it's inherently politicized, right? Like it, people see it, people see our love as being a statement, um, mm. which is just a side effect. It's not what we intend, but it's also unavoidable. I will say two things about representation that I've thought about quite a lot recently. I was watching, I watched Rogue One, and I 
seeing Riz on screen being an action star. I had this like really intense emotional experience to it because I hadn't since I was a kid, I hadn't really seen in Hollywood my people being action stars, right? You, mm-hmm. you don't you don't see that. You still don't see that. So so to me, representation is important because of two things. One, it's important I think for people and children to see themselves on screen. I think that's very very important. The other thing is what you said is not just not just seeing representation on screen, but seeing different voices represented in the mm-hmm. stories is important. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Moonlight. That's mm-hmm. a great example. I think Get Out is another fantastic example of mm-hmm. that. And Wonder Woman, too. We don't mm-hmm. see many female-led superhero movies directed by a female director. I think right? you could say any. I, I think this is the first <laughs> one, right? Isn't it? So, so what I'm saying is representation is important for people to see themselves, and I think that's good for society. But also I think people actually want to see stories told from different perspectives. Yeah. So, so you're not making these movies to make any because, – because it's good for society. You're making these movies because there's, there's money in it. Get Out is tremendously successful. Wonder Woman is huge. Yeah. People want to see stories told from different points of view. So I guess that's, that's the exciting thing is that it's actually financially a good thing to have different voices tell their stories. Um, I, think that's the most, I think that's the most exciting thing and people are catching on. It's like, you know, in Hollywood, there has been sort of this thing where like people don't want to see protagonists of certain ethnicities or, or whatever. I think people do. I think people just, I think it's novel. Like our movie is sort of a romantic comedy, but because it's told from a different perspective, it's inherently novel, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I, I mean, I don't know how many people are going to see our movie, but Get Out, Wonder Woman, Moonlight, People want to see stories from different perspectives. Well, I was just going to say, everybody, help continue to break that mold and go see The Big Sick. Uh, it opens, limited release, the 23rd of June, right? And then, I guess, goes wider a week or two later? It sort of goes wide for four weeks, and July 14th is when it goes everywhere. So everybody will be able to see it on July 14th. Yes. So check it out. Kamal, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, thanks for having me. 